Take your Bible this morning and turn over to John's Gospel. John's Gospel. And what I'd like to do is we're coming to a new section today in John's Gospel. If you're visiting with us, we exposit here from book to book. And we call that an expositional ministry, which I think is pretty unique um, in the sense that uh, much today is topical in orientation. And we believe that the best way... Some would say the only way to teach from the scripture is to make sure that you would exposit book to book, and that's what we do here. So I am in the Gospel of John, and we come to a new section today, and I'd like to read that. You follow along. It's in John chapter 1. You follow from 19 down through 34. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophets? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, and I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. What a tremendous section of Scripture. John the Baptist was, I believe, given the greatest role ever given to man. He was given the role to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And John the Baptist said of Christ in 115 that our Lord ranks before me. And yet it was Christ who announced him greater than any other person that had been born up to that time in Matthew 11, 11. John the Baptist, that's really our theme this morning from the scripture. I've titled the message, The Testimony of John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist is distinct from the writer of this gospel. The writer of this gospel is John the Apostle. So here, John the Apostle is using the testimony of John the Baptist. I might refer to them as John A and John B as we go forward. But John the Baptist's name was given to him, you remember in Luke chapter 1, by the angel Gabriel to his father, Zacharias. And so even when you think of the Baptist birth, it was in many ways a miraculous birth. We know from Luke's gospel that his mother, whose name was Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In addition, Elizabeth was the relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1, 36. You remember that when John the Baptist was born, Zechariah wrote that his name was to be John. And at that moment, his tongue was loosed, and he sang what some people call the Benedictus, that great blessing that includes the words from his father that you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. John the Baptist was an incredible man. You might remember that John the Baptist was a Nazarite from his birth meaning that he took a Nazarite vow. And in accordance with that vow, he never cut his hair. He never touched a dead body. 
He never drank from the fruit of the vine. He lived what we might say a pure, physically uncontaminated life. And so as we come to this text in 119, John A., the apostle, records John B.'s ministry because the record of the gospel message was really inaugurated with John the Baptist. I think some of these scriptures will come up on our screen in Luke 16, 16. There the writer said that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. In other words, as you look back, it was the law and the prophets. But when John came from that time and from his preaching and his baptism of Christ, from that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 37, there the apostles said, You yourselves know that the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, and then it says in Acts 10, 37, after the baptism which John proclaimed. And so from his ministry, from his public ministry, it launched, if you will, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13, in verse 23, it says, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So when you begin to look at the New Testament, when you begin to put New Testament theology together, you begin to recognize that John the Baptist was the culmination of Old Testament history. He was the culmination of Old Testament prophecy as well as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's fascinating about John the Baptist is that after he was born, and you remember that he was, the, he was the one who kicked the womb of his mother when they came in to marry. He was filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. But after his birth, he, he disappeared. In fact, he went into the desert until the beginning of his public ministry in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And so we believe when John the Baptist began his ministry, he was probably 29 or 30 years old. And when he did begin his ministry in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So imagine if you're in Israel at that time, and you're in that greater region of Israel, and there had been 400 long silent years. It had been 400 years since a prophet of God spoke. And then this one, and then you think of the prophecy that came in Isaiah. You think of the forerunner of the Messiah, the herald of the king. He finally appeared on the stage of human history. Israel was ripe, if you will, to hear a word from God. And so then John came and he began to preach and he began to stir the nation. And as you begin to look at the scriptures, he was the talk of the town. In fact, so much was he the talk of the town that in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And so people were flocking to John the Baptist. They were flocking to hear his message. And his message was not an easy one. It says in Matthew 3, 7, and 8, imagine this, if you're John, and there's a herd of people there, it says that when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his Baptist, excuse me, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, it was a very, very strong message. I mean, I don't think he was writing the book, Your Best Life Now. Imagine if you're in that crowd, and here comes the religious authorities of the day, and he greets them with, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, his message that he preached in the wilderness 
was simple but profound. It says in Matthew 3, 2 that he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his ministry was so influential that the Jewish authorities felt the need to investigate John the Baptist. They wanted to know, who is this man? And so here as we look to John's gospel, after a lofty and very theological introduction, John A., if you will, sets the ministry of our Lord in his historical context. So I like to say it this way, that John the Apostle calls on John the Baptist to testify about the truth of Jesus Christ. And I think what's fascinating for us as we walk through this is this testimony that we're going to read in 119 down through at least 134 is found in no other gospel record. So I feel like we're on holy ground for our church. You're not going to see this part. There's other places in the Gospels, the synoptics, that mention John the Baptist. And other synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talk about his, bapt, you know, his baptizing ministry. But what we're going to go through today and even next week is not found in any other Gospel record. So the text this morning is going to run us from 119 down through verse 34. We'll look at 119 through 28 today, and then next week we'll look at 129 through 34. And so I've titled this the, the Testimony of John, the Testimony of John the Baptist. And the reason so is look down at verse 19. That's how John the Apostle opened it up. He said in 119, This is the testimony of John. And so here we've looked at the prologue in 1, 1 through 18, and we come this morning to the presentation of the Son of God that will really run us from 119 down through chapter 4, verse 54. So what I want to do with our time this morning is to present the testimony of John the Baptist by way of three signposts that point the way to Christ. Three signposts that point the way to Christ and I think provides us an example of humble service to our Lord, okay? The first signpost is John's confession. It's John's confession. The second signpost is the leader's confusion. They're confused about who Christ is. And then the third signpost is John's clarity. And all of these signposts point to Christ for this purpose that you might put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. The first signpost is this, his confession. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Stop there just for a moment. You'll note in verse 19, as we walk into the text, it says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites. That, that term there for Jews, it's a very familiar term for John the Apostle. In fact, when you look at the term Jews, it's used about 77 times in the Gospel of John alone. Now, sometimes that word is used in a very neutral way. He's just talking about Jewish people. But most often, when you see that phrase there in verse 19... It's used in reference to Jewish leaders who oppose Christ. Jewish leaders who were hostile to Christ. Now we believe as you begin to put all the accounts together, this is likely a group that is known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the governing body of Israel. And what the Sanhedrin did is they sent, you can see it, a committee of priests and Levites to get an answer from John the Baptist. Hey, who are you? I mean, we have responsibility in this nation for what goes on religiously as well as politically, and we want to know who you are. Who are you, John? Now, you'll note there, look again at verse 19, that the Jews sent priests. These were the intermediaries between God and man. In fact, the priests were the ones who officiated the religious ceremonies of the Jewish nation. 
They were the theologians of the day, the priests. They were the experts on religion. And so they sent a delegation of priests, and then you'll note there, kind of a rare term, they sent a group of Levites. The Levites' role was they assisted the priest in the temple rituals. You go back to Numbers 3, back to Numbers 18, that was their role. They were known as the Levites, and they were the temple staff. Some people called them the temple guard. They were responsible to assist the priest and to ensure the safety of the temple. And so as these Jews are sent from the priest and the Levites, they come from Jerusalem and they ask him, who are you? In other words, John the Baptist, what do you claim for yourself? Now you'll note there that it says they were sent from Jerusalem. I think it could be very well a a show of power. Who are you? Now look how John answers that in verse 20. It's interesting, very strongly. He confessed, he did not deny But confessed, it's like a triple denial, I am not the Christ. Now you'll note back in 19, they asked, who are you? But implied in that question is, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he says to them, I am not the Christ. I am not the anointed one. Now you say, why would they ask that question? Are you the Christ. Well, some wondered when you look at the biblical accounts in Luke 3:15 if John the Baptist was the Messiah himself. In fact, in Luke 3:15 it says and the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Here's the statement, whether he might be the Christ. There were people in this time that thought maybe that's the Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist is the anointed one. And John here in his confession, this signpost, says, I'm not the Christ. And he triply, if you will, wants to be emphatic, as I mentioned, and he said, I am not the one you are looking for. Do you remember back earlier, look at John chapter 1. Here John the Apostle said of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, though, chapter 1, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist is not the light. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. Grace Church of the Valley, look over in chapter 3 of your Bible. In chapter 3 of your Bible, we'll see a second testimony down the road here. But you remember in 327 there, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 328, you yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. So here, John's one great ambition, beloved, was to exalt Christ. That's his confession. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. So then there's a second signpost, okay? That's his confession, but the leaders are confused. Look at the text again, back in John chapter 1. Look at verse 21. So if you're not the Christ, verse 21, they asked him, what then are you? And they asked him this question, are you Elijah? If you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? Now, you might ask, why would they even ask him if he was Elijah? Well, you might remember that God promised through the prophet Malachi to send Elijah in bodily form before the Messiah Returned. In fact, let me show you. Look back in Malachi. Go back in the New Testament to Matthew, and then go back one more book to the book of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Last book there before there was 400 silent years. So it's the last book of the Old Testament, last book before the 400 silent years. And then the last thing that one of the prophets of God had said And you might have to turn with me on a few of these things so we discover why they thought he was Elijah. But it said here in 
Malachi 4, verse 5, the prophet said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Right there, the prophet said, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the Lord returns. Verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land and decree utter destruction. And so here, many thought Elijah would precede the Messiah. But John the Baptist, if you go back now, if you will, to Luke, excuse me, to John chapter 1, verse 21, they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And he said in 121, I am what? Not. I'm not. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one. Are you then Elijah? And he just confesses here to their confusion, I am not. Now, when he says, I am not, it is a bit puzzling. It's puzzling that he said he is not. You say, well, why is that puzzling? Well, look what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Go in your Bible to the book of Matthew. You need to see this with your eyes. Go to Matthew chapter 17. There was confusion about this person of Elijah. And part of it was, as John the Baptist said, I'm not Elijah but have you seen what our Lord said about John the Baptist? Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. There, after the transfiguration, in 17:10, the disciples asked him, "Then why do the disciples, or why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come?" And he answered, red letter edition, I trust. If you're holding one of those, 1711, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah, Jesus said, has already what? Come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Now this in 1713, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John who? The Baptist. So out of the words in the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's already come, Elijah. He came in the person of John the Baptist. Here later in this gospel, they did to him whatever they pleased. What did they do with John? They cut his head off, okay? And then the disciples, verse 13, understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So on the one hand, they asked him, are you Elijah? And he himself said, I am not, but... Jesus said, if you like it and understand, he, he already did come. In fact, what's even more interesting is go back to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to have to make reason out of this. And we're here. They're confused. That's our second signpost. Here in Matthew chapter 11, it says, you remember we read earlier in 11.13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... Now look at this in 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is what? Elijah to come. So they were wondering, is this Elijah? And they asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Though Jesus Christ says in Matthew 17, it is. He says in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who is to come. How can we understand this apparent difficulty? Well, here's how. I think there's a key in the scripture. In fact, you remember uh, when John the Baptist was born and at his birth, the angel proclaimed to his father something special about Elijah. And I want you to turn there. Go over to Luke just for a second, okay? Go over to Luke. I want you to understand this. In Luke chapter 1, Something was proclaimed by that angel to his father, uh, you know, Zechariah, about this son who would be born to him. Do you remember 
And you can even go back in 114 of Luke 1, Luke 1.14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. There's that Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Now watch this. Key, verse 17. And he, speaking of John the Baptist, will go before him, Christ, watch this, in the spirit and the power of what? Elijah. There's the key phrase. John the Baptist is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So in this sense, John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah, at least in the spirit and in the power of of Elijah. So our Lord could say, I think appropriately of John the Baptist, he was the Elijah to come. He was, I would say it this way, Elijah-like in function. He did, did John the Baptist, Elijah-like work. Though John the Baptist was not the literal Elijah in person. I think what's interesting here is John's appearance. You remember, if you've grown up in the life of the church, was strikingly similar to Elijah's. For example, in Mark chapter 1, 6, do you remember when John arrived on the scene, he was clothed in, what was he clothed in? In camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Now, I was riding a camel in Israel in January. And, I, I, you know, this guy's not wearing designer clothes, okay? He's wearing camel's hair, and he's got a leather belt around his waist. Now, that's not very odd. The prophets in the Old Testament would wear prophetic garb, and part of the garb they wore would be camel's hair. But what's interesting is in 2 Kings 1.8, it described Elijah like this, as a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. So what Elijah wore, John the Baptist wore. I think it's interesting when you look at John's message. He called for a message in Matthew 3, 2 of repentance And then he warned the nation of Israel about the coming judgment in Matthew 3, 10 and 12. In fact, as you looked at what he preached and you go over to 1 Kings chapter 18, it would have reminded the hearers of what Elijah preached. Now, John here then declares in response to the question, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He denied being the returning prophet Elijah. He was not Elijah in the literal sense. He came, and I'm using the words of Scripture, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, beloved, it could very well be, what do you think, that John the Baptist simply did not know this early in his ministry that he fulfilled the role of Elijah. It could be that, but I tend to think that he was operating like him in function. But he profoundly says, that I am not Elijah who is to come. So there's confusion on the Jewish part. Look back to John chapter 1 now. Go back there. They want to know, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. And and if you're not Elijah, then, then look what they said in their confusion. They said in 121, did the Levites and priests, are you the, what? Prophet. Are you the prophet? Now they're confused here. Because there was teaching in the scripture that a prophet would come. In fact, there's profound teaching in the scripture, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. You can read that on their own. It described a coming prophet that would come and make all things right. And so the Jewish people thought maybe, gosh, if he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, maybe he's the prophet. In fact, look over in your Bible in chapter 6. Not only did they wonder if John the Baptist was the prophet, but look over in John chapter 6. After the people saw what Christ had done in 6.14, 
when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, so they wondered, hey, maybe Christ is the prophet himself, and clearly uh, he's more than that prophet. He is the Messiah. Look over at John chapter 7. There again, after some miraculous work in John chapter 7, in verse 40, there was a division amongst the people. And in 740 of John, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Now, I I mentioned there was a prophet that was anticipated in Deuteronomy 18.15. But that prophet referred specifically to Christ. If you want to write down, Peter said that that prophet in Deuteronomy 18.15 was fulfilled in Christ. He said that in Acts 3.22. Stephen, in the book of Acts, acknowledged that the prophet that was prophesied to come was fulfilled in Christ, Acts 7.37. So now here in John chapter 1, they want to know, Look back at 121. Are you the prophet? And he answered in 121 what? Uh, he just said, no, he, he's not. I, I am not that prophet. He's not the guy. He's not the man. So they said to him, look at verse 22. They asked him, well, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In other words, John the Baptist, who are you? I mean, this delegation is coming to the point of exasperation. John, all you've told us is a string of denials. Help us here a little bit. We've got to give a report. What do you say about yourself? And so there's confusion in this signpost, if you will, but it leads to the third signpost, and it's going to be John's clarity. His clarity. And he's going to be crystal clear here. I mean, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then who are you? And he tells them. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here it is. He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He says, but I am the voice in Isaiah. And he quotes, as you can see there, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Let me show it to you. It's just such a significant text. Look over at Isaiah just for a moment. Look over at Isaiah 40. Do you remember here in Isaiah 40, they were was the prophet Isaiah bringing comfort to the people of God. And he gave this this prophecy here in chapter 40. In fact, let me read it in verse 1, just so you're familiar with it. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, 40 verse 1, says your God, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here it is. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And an even ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so here, I think it's fascinating John just says, I'm not Messiah. You get it. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He said, I am the voice, though. That's who he is. I'm the voice in chapter 40 of the one who is crying out in the wilderness. Now, beloved, what I, what I think is significant there in his clarity, if you can see this, is rather, you know, for John the Baptist, you know, rather than pulling out titles, Rather than talking about degrees, 
pedigree, rather than talking about rank, rather than talking about accomplishments, rather than talking about awards, rather than talking about the angel Gabriel who prophesied about this one, he just said, I'm a voice. In fact, it's significant because Jesus said, I am the word. John just says, I'm the voice. Leon Morris, the great commentator, said the point of the quotation is that it gives no prominence to the preacher whatever. He is not an important person. He is not a prophet. He is not the Messiah. He is no more than a voice. And what the voice does is proclaim in Isaiah, make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, this one that would come, the forerunner of the Messiah, would say to this nation and to the people, prepare your hearts for the coming Messiah. Ready yourself. That's who he was. D.A. Carson just kind of expands on this whole context in Isaiah 40. He said in the original context, the Old Testament prophet he said, was calling for a metaphorical improvement in the road system of the desert to the east. He was calling for a leveling of the hills and the valleys and kind of, if you will, a straightening of the curves to accommodate the return of a covenant people from exile. But even in Isaiah, at the end of the exile, begins to serve as a model of what Carson called a literary type of the final return to the Lord far greater than the return to geographical Jerusalem. In fact, when you begin to read Isaiah 40 through 66, it begins announcing the good news to Zion, and Zion is just a reference for Jerusalem. It goes on to anticipate a still greater redemption affected by the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. It's climaxed as you move to the end of Isaiah with a new heaven and a new earth in 65 and 66. So Carson said it is this typological connection already established in the book of Isaiah that the New Testament writers take up and understand to be fulfilled in the voice of John the Baptist. John was one beloved who cried in the desert preparing the way for the Lord and thereby announcing the coming of Jesus Messiah. He is that promised forerunner. He is the one. He is the voice, if you will. Now look at John chapter 1 again in verse 24. There's just a little footnote here when you think, what's the bigger picture? John here, the apostle, gives us a little interpretation. He says these Levites and the priest in 124 had been sent from the Pharisees. There's just a little commentary on it. Oh, there's Levites and the priest, but the Pharisees are behind this. And do you remember the Pharisees were the ones who surrounded the law of God with a mass of their own interpretations and they just always focused on the outward observance and observance, and they emphasized those things at the expense of the heart. And often the Pharisees became legalistic, and it could lead to spiritual pride. And so he gives a little interpretation, and they step back in. Look at verse 25. They asked him, and I still think it's the Levites and the priests. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets. In other words, they come by way of delegation and they say, listen, if you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then who, John, is authorizing you to baptize? In fact, John, you got to tell us, why are you even baptizing Jewish people? John, who sanctioned you to do this? If, and if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the coming prophet, then John, how do you justify this baptism? Look what John said in the text. Look at verse 26. He answered them and he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am un, or not worthy to untie. So John says, oh yes, I baptize. He says, I baptize with water. Now let me just clarify. If you just read that in verse 26, I think he's minimizing it. He says, I do, I do baptize with water. Now I just, for you, I, I don't think he's talking about Christian baptism. 
Christian baptism, beloved, comes after the resurrection. John's baptism here, I don't even think, was proselyte baptism. It would be fairly common that in that nation of Israel there, they would have proselyte baptism. That if a Gentile was going to become Jewish, if you will, in practice, they would baptize them. They called it proselyte baptism. I don't even think John's doing proselyte baptism here. I don't think his baptism initiated people into Judaism. What his baptism did, however, is provide an opportunity for people to testify in a public act of confession their desire for spiritual cleansing and a readiness to receive the Messiah when he would come. So John just says, I baptize with water. But he said, this is nothing compared to the one who's coming after me. I am nothing. I am not the Messiah. I am not the prophet. I am not Elijah. Listen, I do baptize in water, but there's one who's coming after me that you need to listen to. In fact, you say, what was the purpose of his baptism? Let me show you. Look down in the text in chapter one. Next week, we'll look at it in verse 31. He said, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. Here's why in 131. That he might be revealed, it says there, to Israel. John's baptism was preparatory, if you will. And he says this of Christ. Think about it. He said, he is so great. He is so glorious. I mean, this is the one who in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is the one who spoke and the world came into existence in chapter 1-3. You think I'm something, I'm nothing. Listen, there's one coming after me. And then he uses that phrase that I am not even willing, if you will, or I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And you say, where do you get that phrase, untie the sandal? I picture that in your mind. In fact, never, ever would a Jewish person ever be able to untie anybody's sandal. The only person who can untie someone's sandal was the lowest slave on the rung, if you will. And he says of himself, listen, if you think I'm something and you're coming to hear me, I'm nothing. This one who's coming after me is so great, is so glorious, is so majestic. This is the creator of the world. This is God himself. And I'm not even worthy, if you will, to untie the latchet of his sandal. He considers himself unworthy to perform the most menial task for the one who comes after me. I mean, think about it just for a second. I mean, is this true? If ever a man could boast, it was John the Baptist. I mean, I suppose Paul could have boasted, and he never did. But could you imagine the stuff that John the Baptist could have boasted on to gain a hearing? He could have talked about his miraculous birth. He could have said, hey, you send out birth announcements, but I had this angel named Gabriel come down. You could say, hey, I gave this first name to my daughter and this middle name to my daughter or this first name and middle name to my son, and here's why. John could have said, I top y'all. He goes, I got my name from the angel Gabriel. I mean, he could have talked about his solitary life. This could have been far beyond Bear Gryllis, who goes out and gives his things about surviving in the wilderness. Can you imagine what John could have wrote on that end about what it was like to eat locusts and what it was like to eat wild honey, what it was like to live on a grasshopper diet? I mean, he could have published a manual of discipline for those who wanted to follow God, but to his credit, he would have none of it. You know that he said this, beloved, that he must increase and I must, what? Decrease. One evening, the great conductor, Toscanini, performed, if you will, he led Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And as Toscanini led that tremendous symphony, it was a brilliant performance. And at the end of it, the audience, they would say in history, 
just went wild. They clapped, they whistled, they stamped their feet. They were absolutely caught up in the greatness of the performance. As Toscanini stood there, he bowed and then he bowed again and then he, he bowed again to acknowledge his orchestra. When the ovation finally began to subside, Toscanini, if you can picture this, turned and looked intently at his musicians and he whispered to them, gentlemen, gentlemen, and the orchestra leaned forward to listen and in a fiercely enunciated whisper, Toscanini said, gentlemen, I am nothing. And, and if you know anything about Toscanini, that was um, an extraordinary admission since he had an enormous ego, they would tell us. But then he said, not only am I nothing, he leaned over to them and he said, gentlemen, you are nothing. But Toscanini said, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. Listen, you can take that on a human level, but that is the attitude, if you will, towards of this servant, right? That he never looked to himself. He looked to the Lord Jesus Christ and he basically said, I am nothing, you are nothing, but he is what? Everything. Listen, beloved, John knew his place. So he begins to open up this wonderful gospel and he takes you from a theological reflection in the throne room of God to the historical account of John A. giving credence to John the Apostle's testimony. Now look at the last verse in 128. It says, these things, just to close it out, took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. You say, well, Scott, where is this place? Well, it says it's Bethany. You say, well, where is that? Well, John says it's across the Jordan. We can't find it on our map. Some scholars want to say that's the Bethany near Jerusalem. I think that would be wrong. There's another Bethany on the map that is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that was very near Jerusalem. But to not confuse that Bethany with this Bethany, here John the Apostle says these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. And we just don't know where it is. There's a couple sites that historians believe that that Bethany was, but we just can't be sure because we do know John was out in the wilderness. But beloved, here it is. Three signposts that point us to Jesus Christ that provide us an example of humble service. You know, as I think about John and I think about our flock, you know, when you look at John's life, he was humble, wasn't he? I mean, there's no pride in him. There's no exalted sense of greatness. There's not an inflated ego there. He's never taking credit for himself. And I thought to myself, he just really died to himself. He died to his glory, died to his pride, died to his ego, died to his preferences. And I thought to myself, what would happen in the life of our church if we had John's heart? If everything pointed to Christ, if we said of ourselves, I am nothing, you are nothing, but he is everything. You know, we have as our statement, our purpose statement of the church is that we exist to glorify God. And we do that by exalting the Savior, equipping the saints, and extending the kingdom. Could you imagine what would happen in this room if that was our chief desire to die to self? Can you imagine if we took no glory, no credit, no honor, no rank, no prestige, no degree, we had no pedigree to offer, and we just kept getting people to Christ? Could you imagine what would happen in your home if husband and wife, rather than jockeying for a position and wanting the authority and wanting the control, if each particular person said, I am nothing, Christ is everything? When I was a young man, I remember at one point going into John MacArthur's office. I might have shared this with you. But he had this little plaque on his desk. And it was so good that I asked him for a copy of it. And, and the copy of it is emblematic in my mind of the life of John the Baptist. 
He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. In fact, all he said is, I'm just a voice crying out. And he fulfilled that scripture. But here's what that plaque said. And I thought it might be a good way just to close our time out as you think about your life. As you, if you're in high school, as you think, hey, what, what's my role? What's my role at humor? You're, you're in junior high. You think, what's my role in my home? What's my role with my brothers and sisters? And what's my role with my teachers or a spouse? What's my role with my husband, you know, respectively? Or what's my role with, with my spouse? But here's how it goes. It says, here's what it means to die to self. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice, dis, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption to the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. And when you can receive correction and reproof from one of less, from one of less stature than yourself can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly Finding, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Well, listen, when I think of John the Baptist, I think of a man that died to himself. And I would say to you, as a church, as a family, to the degree that we can take on that heart, character, and attitude to exalt the person of Christ is to the degree that our church will get on fire. But as long as it's about us, as long as it might be about our preference, then we might lose sight of the one who is most glorious and the one whose sandal we're not even worthy to untie.